hppodcraft.com. Hello and welcome to the HP Lovecraft Literary Podcast. Here at hppodcraft.com, I'm Chris Lackey. And I am Chad Pfeiffer. And we are interrupting our regular show structure this week. We are not covering any particular story. Actually, Lackey and I had a long discussion about it this weekend, and, yep. and we decided that books are for nerds. What? No, yeah. we, no we didn't. <laughs> no, we actually, we've had a wonderful time the last couple of months talking ghost stories and, uh, and weird women writers. But for October, we're going to refocus on Lovecraftian themes. And we thought the best way to do that would be to bring in the author of the new annotated H.P. Lovecraft, a beautiful book which hits the street October 13th, I believe. Ladies and gentlemen, we're happy to welcome Leslie S. Klinger to the show. Welcome, Les. Thank you, Chad. Uh, it's funny you mentioned books. I was just at the uh, Lovecraft Film Festival yesterday, and I felt it incumbent upon myself to tell a story about when I was on tour with Sherlock Holmes, a woman had come up after the talk to say to me what a big fan she was, and she was so glad she'd come to the lecture because she didn't know that there were books. <laughs> what? I, so I said the same thing to the uh, film crowd yesterday. You know, we're really delighted to, that you're here today so that we can remind you that there are actually stories that we wrote. <laughs> yeah. <laughs> right. That's hilarious. Well, thanks so much for coming on. I have to say, I wish the book had come out in 2009 when we started covering Lovecraft's fiction because the content's so fantastic and we would have really enjoyed ripping it off. Yeah, absolutely. It's never too late. <laughs> <laughs> Definitely want to talk about the book in more detail, but let's talk a bit about the business of annotating first. I'm interested in in how you got into doing annotations because you've done a lot of these. And also, tell us about some of the other books you've annotated so far. It all goes back to um, how I got hooked on Sherlock Holmes in the first place. When I was in law school, I got as a gift the Baring Gould annotated Sherlock Holmes, which was published in 1967. And I was fascinated by it. I'd never really seen an annotated book before. And I was really interested not only in the stories, but in the idea that there was all of this scholarship focused on these stories and that there was a cult almost of, uh, of Sherlockians uh, who had been spending decades studying the stories. And I wanted to be part of that cult. <laughs> I had a fantasy back then that someday I might be the person when I retired to update the Berengold edition. Oh. Well, flash forward 30 years, and I decided to actually try my hand at a few stories and see how it sort of went. Showed it to some friends. They said, this is pretty good. And that eventually turned into, after a lot of changing around, turned into the set called the Sherlock Holmes Reference Library, which is a 10-volume set. Somebody described the writing style as law review. They didn't mean that, that kindly either. Uh, sort of long, long textual footnotes, no pictures, and so on. In 2002, Norton approached me and basically wanted to update the Beringold edition. I was thrilled. I mean, this is my lifelong dream. I got to do it, and it was just a treat. Yeah. And when it was done, I discovered that I really liked the process. I liked what I was doing. I liked annotating. I've gone down that dark side. <laughs> but you didn't get a chance to retire, I don't believe. No, no, I did not get a chance to retire. But that's because I'm sure you've had other authors on the show who told you the sad truth that authors don't generally make a lot of money unless there is a movie 
um, or a television series. And yeah. I don't see my footnotes being turned into a movie or series, but uh, you never know. I don't think you're thinking big enough. <laughs> yeah. Annotations this month. On so HBO. Sherlock Holmes led to Dracula because they're exactly contemporary Victorians. Mm-hmm. And then the odd project of uh, Sandman came along. Neil Gaiman has been a friend for a long time. And we'd always joked about doing the annotated Sandman. And one day he called me up and said, you know, I'm starting to forget why I wrote this stuff. We should do this. I'm calling DC. Uh, DC said we love it. And uh, so we did that. The third volume of Annotated Sandman comes out uh, this month as well. That has to be somewhat different from the other books because you can actually call the author and and ask him questions. Exactly. Conan Doyle is much harder to contact. (laughs) Um, (laughs) Yes, uh, Neil and I had some very lively exchanges about things. Sometimes things that he hadn't thought about. Sometimes things where I was puzzled by something. And it, it was really, it was a treat. Plus, what I tried to do for Sandman was do a lot of what I call reverse engineering, which was to try and deduce the source material from which Neil had drawn something, something right. historical or whatever. And I was thrilled when I got to go back to his uh, his house and see his library and see some of the books that I had deduced ah. uh, on the shelf. And then how does that lead you to approaching H.P. Lovecraft? Well, Lovecraft is um, quite different from certainly from Dracula and uh, Sherlock Holmes, at least different for me because it's a different time period. There's actually two different time periods. We have his 18th century uh, material Mm -hmm. sort of casting back to early New England history. Um, And then we have clearly 20th century material. So it was a challenge to expand my horizons and, and learn that there was actually history beyond the Victorian period. (laughs) <laughs> and uh, it was it was really fun. I, I must say that I had not paid much attention to Lovecraft before I started the project. Yeah, I was wondering what your initial experience was with Lovecraft. You know, I was a great science fiction reader, and I mean, I read hundreds and hundreds and hundreds, thousands of science fiction books when I was a kid and through college and, and all through my life, and really was almost oblivious to the existence of Lovecraft and the influence of Lovecraft. And then only recently sort of started seeing things that made me pay attention and ultimately pitched the project to Norton, and Norton thought it was great. Hmm. Part of what we've tried to focus on with the books that I've done are books where there is, you'll excuse the expression, um, a cult, you know, a strong fandom sure. sort of built in. Uh, clearly, that's the case with Lovecraft, uh, to, to my great joy. We had that same idea when we started this podcast. It's nice to tap into intense interest that's already out there. Interestingly, the vampire stuff, uh, Dracula didn't get quite the attention I expected. It was really, a, uh, on the one hand, I got a lot of a lot of calls about vampires generally, but um, Dracula sort of, the, the book hasn't done, the book's done reasonably well, but uh-huh. not really as well as Sherlock Holmes. It, it didn't sort of catch on like vampires did generally. I right. think at least Dracula's not as popular today. We should have done the annotated uh, Twilight. <laughs> well, I, uh, yeah, I thought about it. <laughs> it would have been very short. Uh, yeah. All your footnotes are just whatever. <laughs> yeah. <laughs> no, I mean, it's interesting. I, t- I teach a class. I'm teaching a class uh, starting next month called uh, Dracula in His World. And, you know, we'll talk about Twilight and some of the other post-Dracula phenomena. Sure. Interesting. I was I was the chair of um, a jury for the Horror Writers Association 
in which we selected the vampire novel of the century, post-Dracula. Mm-hmm. We were really focused on the books that had impact. It wasn't really about sort of the cleverness of the story or whatever. Twilight did make the long list um, of, you know, sort of 30 books that were really important vampire stories. Yeah. The winner, interestingly, was not the one I predicted. I predicted it would be Interview with the Vampire. Yeah, me too. That's what I would guess too, yeah. I can't say where that ranked in the top five, but it was certainly in the top five, but Mm -hmm. uh, the winner was I Am Legend by uh, Richard Mathis. Oh, right. That's such a fantastic book. Yeah, it is. Well, and again, it was was perceived by the jury, I think, as as a game changer huge game changer because vampires were no longer supernatural they were um a disease the the you know the whole twist of the story is that the hero uh thinks he's essentially saving the human race when in fact vampires are clearly the superior race at this point well they're the only race i mean that's like that, going to take over the world yeah. yeah he's he's the bad guy that's what the whole awesome part of the end of that book is that you his perspective was just wrong about the way things went. People yes. became vampires, and that was the natural progression of things. And he was this dinosaur holding on to this idea of what humanity was supposed to be. Yes. And that was just brilliant. Like, of course, nothing like that book. I mean, I, when I first read that, it, it blew my mind. Yeah, a powerful book. The others are no slouches. I mean, you know, no, the, of the course rest not. of the list. I mean, Salem's Lot. Yeah. Uh, just a, a great book. One of my favorites, Anno Dracula by Kim Newman. Well, I've never heard of that. Kim Newman has written a series. The first is called Anno Dracula. The second is called The Bloody Red Baron. The third is called Dracula Cha Cha Cha. The fourth one is now called Johnny Alucard. That's um, <laughs> a slightly alternate universe in which Dracula isn't killed by Van Helsing and in fact rises to power and vampires essentially become a, a very broad part of culture they're really really excellent books wow speaking of selecting different stories how did you select the the stories for the lovecraft uh, book because there's i think there's 20, 21 of them 22 yes 22 so that was it that was the challenge the challenge was that we couldn't use everything i mean lovecraft wrote 85 stories many of them are skippable how's that for a new word yeah uh, but there are some that i love that just had to go because we wanted to keep the book at a $40 price point. As it is, it's 950 pages or something like that. If we'd had more stories, it would have gone over the size that we could do at $40. So some had to go. The ones that I'm sad about, uh, The Outsider, The Shunned House, The Terrible Old Man, The Rats in the Walls, um, and so on. But the stories we ended up picking um, I basically tried to focus on the what I call the Arkham cycle. Stories that are take, that take place in Arkham that really develop the whole Arkham Miskatonic University idea of his tough choices, but there's 22 stories. And then, now, you know, virtually all, with the exception of the ones that I've mentioned, every well-known story is there. We didn't include uh, Dream Quest of Kadaf because... First of all, hardly anybody's read it. And second, it was just overwhelmingly yeah. long. It's a long one. But uh, At the Mountains of Madness, Charles Dexter Ward, both there in full. All the other great ones. Donage Horror, Call of Kulu, Dagon, etc. Well, you know, we've relied heavily on S.T. Joshi's work on the show. He has a, an annotated Lovecraft as well. Did you work with him when you were developing this book? What was your experience? Yes. Yeah, so S.T. and I met um, a few years ago at one of the horror conventions. He was happy to hear that I was doing this. I think the whole... 
Lovecraft community has been very welcoming to me, even though I'm a newbie, Mm. because I think they're very excited about the attention of a major publisher. So this was conceived from the beginning as a great project, and especially because unlike, uh, for example, the Oxford University edition that came out last year, I actually sort of sought out Lovecraftians to help with this. Mm-hmm. Um, ST was helpful in providing some texts, and of course I looked at every single one of his annotations. Uh, unfortunately, you know, his annotated books are, are paperbacks, mass market paperbacks, and they only cover maybe 10 stories. Mm-hmm. While I looked at his material, it didn't cover everything that I was going to include. Furthermore, um, and I don't mean this as a criticism, I mean it's in some ways uh, uh, really incredible. His annotations are basically all, I guess I'd describe them as original. They're Joshi on Lovecraft. Mm -hmm. And I wanted to go beyond uh, ST's comments. I wanted to include all of the material that's in uh, Crypt of Clulu and Lovecraft Studies and the dozens and dozens of serious books that have been written about the stories. And so in that respect, my annotations are quite different from his. And also you've got a lot of visuals in the book, correct? Yes, because because it's Norton, their whole aim with this annotated series, which is now I think, I think this is book number 19 in the series, of which I've done essentially four. Their whole aim has been to produce beautiful books. There are copious illustrations. I mean, we have, I think, over 300 illustrations many of them color photographs of locations mentioned in the stories, movie posters, all kinds of cool things, and all of the Weird Tales illustrations, by the way. Plus, and I was very excited to include these, some of the illustrations from the Visionary Press edition of uh, Shadow Over Innsmouth, you may know is the only book published during Lovecraft's lifetime Mm -hmm. of his work. The illustrations are magnificent woodcuts, and the you know the book itself is so rare, you hardly anybody gets to see them. Yeah. So I I really wanted to include those. Interestingly, we tried hard to track down the artist, but uh, it seems to have disappeared. I mean, there's, there's no family left. The book came out mm. in 1904, so I right, didn't yeah. expect him to be alive. But well, he might be immortal, living under the ocean right now. <laughs> artist named Frank Utpatel. Right. I remember coming across that name when we were doing the the story, but but no. Uh... No connections, huh? I couldn't find family or anything? Nope. I found uh, some family um, named Utpatel in, in the general area where he lived in Madison, Wisconsin, but was unable to contact anybody and sort of ended up <laughs> running with it anyway. You know, the, the illustrations, it really a challenge to try and track down rights to illustrations because so many of these are done as works for hire, and then the publishers go out of business and who owns the rights? Right. I've got a question for you about the fact that you're doing an annotation of Lovecraft's work. Because it's being annotated, that kind of implies significance. Yes. What do you think the significance of Lovecraft's work is to literature in general? The easy answer is to point to the authors who cite Lovecraft as a significant influence on them. But I think that's uh, that's sort of chicken and egg. Mm-hmm. I think Lovecraft invented what he called cosmic horror, or really was the first to make use of that in literature. And I, I think that's what makes it so important. I love, when I was writing the foreword, I found this quotation, engulfed in the infinite infinite immensity of spaces, whereof I know nothing and which know nothing of me, I am terrified. The eternal silence of these infinite spaces fills me with dread. 
Now, that is not Lovecraft. That's Blaise Pascal writing in 1670. <laughs> but it sounds just like Lovecraft. Yeah, yeah you just surprised me. <laughs> so the idea is not new. No. But Lovecraft decided that the fear of the unknown could do more than just be the basis of ghost stories. He invented this genre of basically the fear of uh, space, if you will, or the infinity that we have. I said at the Lovecraft Festival yesterday that it's interesting to see that, frankly, the more we know from science, the more scary it gets. Yeah. Uh, as, as our knowledge of the universe keeps getting bigger and bigger and, and sort of extending farther and farther out, now we're talking about chaos theory and, and things like this. And it's just, you know, it's frightening. Well, I was listening to Neil deGrasse Tyson talk about how he's afraid that there's going to be a point where humans won't be able to understand what's going on. Science will hit a wall where it'll just be beyond our understanding. You know, Brian Cox, who's a popularist of science here in the UK, he was also talking about how if subatomic physics ends up going one way, we won't be able to understand it because we will have to understand multiple dimensions. Right, the multiverse uh, theory, right? Where, exactly, yeah. Where our, all of our laws of physics are basically random and they there's different laws of physics and other universes. And so the only way that we can really understand past a certain level is if we get to those other universes, which we won't be able to do anytime soon. There's already, you know, some lovely speculations on this. One of my favorite books um, is a book called Einstein's Dreams, in which the author basically explores with stories the idea of time working in well, 30 or 40 different possible ways. Mm really a lovely book speculating on just what we're talking about, the multiverse. But so in any event, the point is that Lovecraft is even more uh, relevant. Yeah. Uh, his, his ideas, his themes and all that. You know, I'm not the first to want to suggest that Lovecraft belongs in the uh, in the great canon of literature. The first big signal of that was the Library of America edition uh, back in the 90s, edited by Peter Straub. Certainly being included in the Norton series is another indicia. I'm not patting myself on the back. I'm saying it's another indicia of the literary merit of the work. Yeah. And they were eager to include him. I mean, I, when I suggested Lovecraft, it was like, wow, that's a great idea. How odd that is considering what uh, how he was appreciated in his lifetime and how long it's taken for him to become relevant. And, and now these big publishers are like, yeah, we like that. People people seem to be into the Lovecraft right now. He's hit his moment. Speaking of which, and you were at the film festival yesterday, because Lovecraft's ideas are so big and kind of hard to wrap your head around unless you're diving into these stories. I mean, do you think that he's truly unfilmable? Or are these things that could find even more acceptance? I do. And I, I sense, I mean, you know, on the one hand, you might say there have already been some great Lovecraft films. Um, I would point to, for example, uh, Prometheus or uh, the, the Alien series in general. Very Lovecraftian. To do straight Lovecraft, I think, is impossible or very difficult. The only ones who have come close, in my view, are the, the guys at uh, the HBL Historical Society who have made essentially period films. Uh, uh, they did Call of Clulu as a, as a silent. Mm -hmm. uh, they did uh, Whisper in Darkness as a 1930s sort of uh, uh, King Kong kind of film. You realize that Chad was in Call of Cthulhu and I'm the, I'm the associate producer on both of those films. Well, golly. I <laughs> so, but, you know, you guys got it right. 
Um, everybody else has tried to make it into a sort of major, and, and, and with all due respect, those films are never going to be shown at your local theater. No. And so I don't think you can make a Lovecraft film today that will end up in your local theater because yeah. he didn't write for that audience. He, mm. he set out, I want to say almost intentionally, I'm not sure it was, I'm not sure he said to himself, I don't want to make any money. <laughs> but he was uncompromising in writing stories that fit his tastes yeah. and not popular tastes. He wasn't interested in the commercial aspects of the story. He knew he was writing for a tiny, tiny audience. He wrote, uh, and I, I read some excerpts from some of his letters yesterday in which he said things about, you know, I know that I'm writing for a handful of people, and that's fine, because I really only write for an audience of one, myself. Well, that's not the kind of material that's going to end up in a major motion picture. It's not action. A lot of it's internal. It's it's slow. He builds the horror in, in small increments. It's what makes the stories be so brilliant, but it's also what would fail, I think, as a film in general. Uh, and by the way, I mean, he's not unique in that respect. Uh, Dracula is very much the same. Dracula um, as a, has never been filmed the way it was written because it's slow. Mm. Yeah, you know, it's funny. I, I loved Dracula. It was really influential on me. Obviously, it was really influential on Lovecraft. But lately, when I've heard people picking it up as adults who hadn't had access to it before, a lot of them find themselves kind of disappointed in it. And perhaps because of all that cinematic buildup, I'm not sure. Have you experienced anything like that? No. Uh, <laughs> 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 I, I well, I came at it a different way. I, I probably I don't remember seeing uh, talking about Dracula. I don't remember seeing the film Dracula uh, as a kid. I read Dracula in college. No, I guess I was in a way very surprised because I had sort of at least heard of Dracula. Everybody had heard of Dracula, and so I didn't expect to be scared by this dusty old Victorian book because it wasn't the real Dracula. Mm -hmm. uh, and wow. Was I wrong? Oh yeah, it scared it scared me quite a bit when I read it the first time. But I was but I was pretty young. So you and end I think up it's still great. yell at the characters. Come on, dummies! It's a vampire. <laughs> 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 right, exactly. I mean, maybe that's what people are bringing to it, and and that's why they're. That, and of course, in. that was not the case with the original Victorian readers. Just in the defense of Dracula films, obviously you haven't seen Evan Costello meet Frankenstein, which I believe is probably the most accurate film representation, yes, of Dracula. Yeah, it's pretty dead on to what happens in that book. I was going to nominate Plan 9 from Outer Space, but, you know... Uh, uh, it's pretty good. I love that movie. Pretty solid. Especially when they use the Solar Night bomb or whatever it's called, and it, and it kills the Bela Lugosi character, and he's wearing that cape, and they unfold the cape, and his skeleton's under there, which means that this thing, because he's wearing the cape, it means it doesn't destroy clothes and only destroys flesh, which means the whole movie he's been running around with that cape on and he's been naked. <laughs> yeah. My favorite Dracula film is Mel Brooks's uh, Dracula Dead and Loving It, just because I love Mel Brooks's work in general, and that's the kind of low humor that I appreciate. Oh. The scene from the film where they've come to Lucy's tomb, Van Helsing is trying to explain to Harker that she's a vampire, she's undead. She's Nosferatu, and he says, she's Italian? <laughs> we, now, we talked about this a little bit. We made reference to this. Dracula's guest. We covered that story, and we got in a bit of a debate 
about whether Dracula was actually in it or if the character was actually Jonathan Harker. You wrote me an email about it and we talked about it on the show, but can you settle this for us? So here's what we know. We can look at Stoker's notes at the Rosenbach Museum in Philadelphia and we can see an outline, an early outline of the book. And an early outline of the book, there was going to be the opening chapter um, was going to be correspondence between the solicitors and Dracula in which he's trying to arrange to buy property in London. That's chapter one. Chapter two was going to be Harker leaving London and traveling partway toward Romania, where he ends up at the beginning of chapter three. Chapter three, he's in Budapest. You know, so chapter two was going to be him traveling from, he's gotten to Munich and now he's going from Munich to Budapest. And it's clear from looking at the manuscript of Dracula that those chapters may have even been written and were tossed because the first page is numbered 103. So there's 102 pages that disappeared. Some have suggested that Dracula's guest is that second chapter. I think that that is clearly wrong because it's not Harker. It may have started as the second chapter. It may have been that he wrote the second chapter and then went back and edited it considerably, or Florence edited it. We're not sure how much of it his wife edited post-mortem. Mm -hmm. There are differences. Harker doesn't speak German, for example, in the in the novel, but he does in this Dracula's Guest. Mm. That's the most obvious, and there, there are some other differences, but it's not Jonathan Harker. I laid this out in a long footnote in Dracula. I actually included Dracula's Guest as an appendix in my annotated Dracula and did a lot of analysis of it. What's interesting to me is what a careless job of removal Stoker did when he cut this from the novel mm -hmm. because there are connective tissues left. For example, two of note, one is that Harker actually thinks he recognizes Dracula when he first meets him. That's because mm -hmm. he saw him in Munich right. in this chapter. Second, you may remember that the, of the three vampire women, one is a blonde. There's a line left in the novel where she looks familiar to Jonathan Harker. Why is that? Oh. It's because she is the countess who appears in Dracula's Guest. Oh, we didn't get to that at all when oh, we covered it. Wow. And when he cut the chapter out, he didn't take out that cross-reference. So anyway, wow. you'll see all that in nice. footnotes to... Uh, to my annotated Dracula. So, now you have to buy the book. Sorry. But you're saying so. But what you're saying is Dracula's guest isn't the missing chapter. However, it probably it started that way. It, it kind of was, but then got changed a little bit to to be its own story. Yes, and there's at least one edition of Dracula out there where they just simply reprinted it as the missing first chapter, and they oh. put it at the beginning of the book. It doesn't really work that way, mm. but that's what they did. So I put it as an appendix because I think it's an interesting thing to look at, but it's not an omitted chapter. Let's jump back to Lovecraft real quick because I think we should be wrapping things up pretty quickly. I, I was interested if your opinions about H.P. Lovecraft or any of his works changed as a result of, of working on the book. Did you find something that you liked more that you used to not like or uh, did you have some maybe some pre uh, some ideas about who he was that were that were completely altered? In part, I thought of him, because I, I hadn't read much Lovecraft, I thought of him as writing about creepy monsters. That's not the case. 
he writes about people who are haunted by creepy monsters, but they may be <laughs> monsters in their minds. They may not even exist. He was much more interested in the psychological aspects of it than making, and, and there's no blood, you know, there's, there's really no violence or blood in Lovecraft stories. This is totally contrary to sort of popular images of it being almost, you know, horror porn. It's not, it's subtle, sophisticated literature. But I was also surprised by the breadth. I mean, that, that he, he had so many styles. And it was really interesting. The, the stories in, in the collection are in the order he wrote them. Mm-hmm. And you can really see the evolution of his, his maturity um, as a writer, uh, as he gains power as a writer. Some of the early stories are a little clunky and weird. People wondered why I included uh, Beyond the Wall of Sleep. <laughs> I really like it because it's sort of his first shot at this idea of uh, mind exchange, and it's his first shot at sort of science fiction. Mm. And I think it's really an interesting story to read in that respect and see how he did better with it later. Yeah, absolutely. Uh, he, he got rid of that device of putting the colander on your head to, <laughs> to go into somebody's dreams. I think I, we, we, I, we really enjoyed that story. We did enjoy that was, it. That was early on. Yeah, yeah that's, def- that's one of the early ones. But I liked how he um, wrapped in an, a genuine astronomical event. Right. Something he did again in, in, in one or two other stories. But Okay, so to round this out, this is a, a question, and I've I'll frame it in a very specific way. In a fight between Sherlock Holmes, Dracula, and Cthulhu, <laughs> who would win? Now, now, and this isn't a pit fight. You're not just throwing these three guys in one pit and they have to fight. This is, they have to destroy one another in the world. <laughs> so, like, Sherlock Holmes might, will have time to prepare things if, you know, because he's you know, a very intelligent guy, but so could Dracula and, of course, Cthulhu. Who do you think would win? Cthulhu's got to win. I mean, only because Cthulhu's a god, a superior being. But he's got sort of unfair advantages, I think, of genetics. Certainly as between Holmes and Dracula, I have no doubt it would be Holmes. Really? Yeah. I mean, we're not talking fisticuffs here. We're not talking about, I always think of the uh, Buffy versus Dracula episode Mm -hmm. in which she essentially uh, corners him. It's like, don't don't be turning into a mist, you know. I know you do that. (laughs) Holmes would outthink Dracula and ultimately there's no more no more powerful weapon than the mind that's right well i i heard that actually the reason that harker recognized that blonde uh vampires is because it's holmes in disguise <laughs> could be <laughs> where did you hear that pfeiffer i just heard it just now i mean oh when you just said that like, yeah when i said it i heard it i heard that as well yeah it's weird it's been going around <laughs> <laughs> Well, thank you so much for coming on the show. This has been amazing. My pleasure. And you actually, you do a podcast as well. I do. Um, it has nothing to do with this sort of thing. We're not competitors. Um, we do, uh, Nancy Claire and I do a show called Speaking of Mysteries, mm-hmm. um, which is really aimed at uh, mostly contemporary mysteries. Uh, it's interviews with contemporary mystery authors. Speaking of Mysteries. Okay. And people can find that on uh, iTunes or go to speakingofmysteries.com. Yes. Great. Th- again, thank you so much for taking the time to talk with us. My pleasure. My pleasure and I hope to run into you guys on tour. Uh, For those who want to actually see me in person, by the way, um, I've posted a pretty good schedule on my website, lesliasklinger.com, where they can see where I'm going to be when. Okay, thank you very much. Thank you, Leslie. Next week, we are going to be covering Hyena the Shepherd by Ambrose Beers. Oh, right. Yes, of course. We'll be back next week with that. Uh, For now, I'm Chad Pfeiffer. And I'm Chris Lackey. And you've been listening to the H.P. Lovecraft Literary Podcast. Leslie, why don't you give us that outro? HPPodcraft.com. HPPodcraft.com. HPPodcraft.com.